All right, let's, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for giving us this time to come together to really search out Scripture. But help us not to think of Scripture as history, but rather as you speaking to us personally. So give us the, you know, the courage to open our minds and our hearts to really understand what it is you are saying to us. Not necessarily uh, what has happened in the past, but what you are really saying to us through the events of the past. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. As I just said, Scripture should not be used just to understand history. Obviously, it is history that caused scripture. Um, but it's interesting, if you think about the Old Testament, the Old Testament started out as the Jewish people recording their histories. It didn't become holy scripture until much later, as they found that it was useful in using it as a guide to how to conduct their personal lives going forward. The New Testament is a little different in that it was written as instruction, but it affected history as it went forward. And if you think about it, much of our history since the time of Christ, was affected by the teachings of Scripture, the teachings of God through Scripture. All right? Just the mere fact that our universal calendar dates from, supposedly dates from the birth of Christ, uh, and so many other things that we just take for granted came out of our understanding of what God wants of us. And so to, in today's program, today's lecture or readings, I want you to look at what it is really saying to you, what is really saying to us today. Because there's an important point that I want, really want to bring out. But I want to go through the first part of chapter, uh, or the first part of this lecture, which is actually the second part of chapter 44, first, and then we'll come back to the point I'm trying to make here. If we start on page 121 at the top, chapter 44, verse 24. Going back a little bit, uh, remember now, the Jewish people have been in Babylon for 50 or 60 years, and they are getting word that they are finally going to be released. Now, this is something relatively new, not only to the Jewish people, but to the history of that time period. Because prior to this, it had never been known that a conqueror 
would allow the conquered people to return to their home base and not only to return, but to help them return, to help them rebuild the city. This was something that was entirely new. And we'll get to the why part of that in a few minutes. Okay. But let's start. <clears throat> Lord, your Redeemer. Well, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. The word Redeemer here uh, is sort of new to Scripture. It has not been used before up to this point. And, of course, we take it forward thinking of, about Jesus Christ. But the word Redeemer can be used to mean a lot of things and refer to a lot of different people. And, of course, in this case, we are thinking of somebody else here. Your Redeemer who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretches out the heavens. I spread out the earth by myself. I bring to naught the omens of babblers, make uh, fools of uh, diviners, div uh, diviners, I should say, or diviners, as some people would say, diviners or diviners. Turn back the wise and make their knowledge foolish. I confirm the words of my servant and carry out the plans my messengers announce. All right, now, see, my messengers announce. Keep that in mind, because we're going to come back to this in a minute. I say to Jerusalem, be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, be rebuilt. I will raise up their ruins. I say to the deep, be dry. I dry up your rivers. I say to Cyrus, my shepherd, he carries out my every wish, saying of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, lay its foundations. All right. The whole idea here is the idea of partners. Okay. Remember, I had talked some time ago about partners, and this is what is uh, really being presented here, is God is actually using... Cyrus, the Persian, who is not a Jew, obviously, as one of his partners in effecting a major portion of his plan of salvation. It goes on to say, that, Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I grasp, subduing nations before him, stripping kings of their strength, opening doors before him, leaving the gates unbarred. I will go before you and level the mountains. Brown's doors I will shatter. Iron barred. <coughs> Excuse me. Brown's doors I will shatter. Iron bars I will snap. I will give you treasures of darkness, riches hidden away that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. Now, this is kind of important in a way, because God is using Cyrus to do something 
good, not only good, but great, something that was unheard of in a way, and that is he's using him to allow the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem, and he's not only allowing them, but he's providing them with all of the utensils that was taken out of the temple 50 or 60 years before by Nebuchadnezzar. (coughs) And he's helping them to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. This is something totally unheard of. Now, we here in Western civilization do not like to be used. It is offensive in a way for us to be used. And we not only cringe when we hear about it, uh, but we we try to protect ourselves from doing so. But throughout history, God has used people to affect certain portions of his plan of salvation. And that is actually a good thing. Some of those things or events were not good for the people of the time. For example, uh, Sinatra, the king of Assyria back in the 8th century, who came against the northern kingdom of Israel and actually conquered it in 722, taking all of those people who could do him some good to Assyria and brought back all the people that he didn't want in Assyria and put them into um, Samaria. (coughs) But the Jewish people were never seen or heard of again because of their apostasy, their total neglect of the God of Israel and the teachings that came from God through Moses. And after God brought the uh, prophets, Hosea and Amos, to the northern people, and they totally ignored him, them, uh, God sort of used that particular king to wipe out those people. All right? He worked with them for many years, and they totally ignored him. The southern kingdom was almost the same way, but not quite as bad. And so he said that he would save a remnant of the people from the south who were carted off to Babylon in the 6th century and allow them to return. And why all of this backwards and forwards? It is because his plan of salvation needed to go forward. God needed the Jewish people and so he allowed them a certain amount of leeway. Remember last week it said that he abandoned them in a way. Well, he abandoned them then for 50 or 60 years in in Babylon, rather, um, because they were almost as bad as the people from the north. The prophets tried to get the people to understand that only by following the teachings of Moses that came from God 
Ten Commandments, etc., would these people actually be blessed in the way they expected? They were called the chosen people, not because they were anything special or anything great, because they were not. In fact, they were just the opposite. They were called the chosen people for a specific reason, and they were not carrying that reason out. And that reason was that they were to be a light to the nations. They were to be a model community that lived in a just society. And by doing so, they would spread this whole idea of love and worship and honoring the one true God and living in a just society where they would express to a great degree, love of neighbor. And they didn't. And they still don't for some, for a certain amount of degree. But that's another subject. Okay. The whole idea is, though, that God had this idea on this plan of salvation that eventually, out of all of the teachings, the customs, the traditions, the rules, the regulations, uh, and the examples of the good Jewish people, out of that would come the Messiah. And they would use the basis of Jewish faith, the Jewish faith and the Jewish traditions and teachings that came for 2,000 years, and that would be the base from which the Messiah would come. Okay? And God was going to do that with their cooperation or in spite of their lack of cooperation. And that is what we're seeing here. That is why we have this sort of back and forth business, this wiping out of one group of people and now this unusual situation that is happening here with the remnant about to be returned from Babylon to Israel. Okay. But Cyrus isn't the only partner that God used. Remember, it started with Abraham. Abraham was the first of the major historical people that we can think of that was used by God to begin the Jewish people in the first place. Abraham was not a Jew. There wasn't any such thing. All right? We don't know exactly what Abraham's background was, but we know he came from the land of Ur, U-R, spelled U-R, and it is, uh, or was, in the area of Iran and Iraq today. He was a nomad, but a very wealthy one, apparently, because he had a large uh, retinue of flocks and servants, etc., but no children. And God promised that he would be the father of a new nation because he worshipped the one true God. And that is something we're going to get into again today the importance of this whole concept of one true, true God. So Abraham realized that God was promising something, but because he and his wife Sarah were quite elderly and way beyond 
bearing children, how was this going to happen? Well, God created a miracle for them by allowing them to have not only one child, but two, unfortunately, because Abraham couldn't wait once he was told he was going to have a a child. So uh, he took matters into his own hands. And um, you know what happened. Uh, But that person, uh, Ishmael, the child that was born of that union of Abraham with his wife's Hagar, I'm sorry, with his wife's uh, servant, uh, was not accepted by God because it was not God's plan. And uh, not only uh, Ishmael, but Hagar was uh, sort of abandoned or or banished, you might say, from uh, the family. Eventually, Sarah did have the child, and that was I, uh, Isaac. Yeah. Anyways, so God used Abraham. God then went on to use Jacob, the grandson. And not only Jacob, but uh, Joseph, the second youngest of the twelve sons of Jacob. He went on to use David, King David, uh, Solomon, the prophets, all of the judges. He used these people in a good way to continue to teach the Jewish people and to affect his plan of salvation. Now, as we go forward, you will see that other people, and I'm jumping ahead, but in addition to all of these famous people throughout uh, the Old Testament, God then uses Joseph and Mary and John the Baptist and the twelve apostles and then who after that? We'll get to that a little later. Any questions? Just on. In some ways, yes. Now, remember, and and Don brings up a good point about when was this portion of Isaiah written. You have to remember that the book of Isaiah, the whole book, 66 chapters, was written at different time periods and not in a chronological order from page one to whatever. Uh, It was not written in that order. Uh, things were sort of uh, pulled apart and shuffled around, you might say. But this was probably written uh, close to that same period of time that we were actually talking about. Okay. Now, that's a, a, a good point to bring up because not all of the Old Testament was written that way. Much of it was written long after the events. But Almost all of it was not written to memorialize the people or events of its time. Most of scripture was written for the people coming down the road much later. 
including us. So, one of the points that I really want to make here, and I appreciate Don's question, is because we, when we read scripture, should not look at it as, oh, this happened to people 2,000 years ago or whatever, 2,500 years ago, and it doesn't pertain to us. It's easy to get into that mode of thinking it doesn't pertain or affect us today. And yet, that's exactly what it should do. You should stop after you've read a portion of scripture and say, how does that affect me today? Because that's where you really get the value of it. If you look at it solely as scripture and not be meaningful to you today, you've missed the point. So, keep that in mind. And that's why you should pray, when you're reading scripture, you should pray to the Holy Spirit for guidance. Because scripture really is important as a tool for how to live a better life today. Yes, Dick? Parallel to that. Parallel to that, we have Ezekiel in Babylon. Yes. And that was probably written at the time that he was in Babylon. Yes. Yes. So we got the two confirming each other in parallel. Very much so. And there's a lot of similarity, not only in their message, but in the wording. Yeah. Which kind of indicates, in a way, uh, that God is really behind what they're saying. When you get the same message in almost the same words, uh, yeah, very much so. Um, as Dick pointed out, Ezekiel was in Babylon at the time. We are not certain, as I've said before, we are not certain whether Isaiah or second Isaiah was ever in Babylon, or how this wording got to them. We know that it was probably disseminated through the synagogue system that I mentioned before, um, as well as other uh, scriptures. Some of the historical books uh, of scripture, and we know that the book of Deuteronomy was studied quite a bit during this time period. Yeah. Uh, but there's still a question as to how this information, and it goes back to your question, Don, we are not totally certain whether this was written exactly at the time or later. I feel because of the message that much of it was written at the time and probably sent to the people in Babylon, because we know that there was communication back and forth uh, Jeremiah, another prophet who was never in Babylon, talks about communicating with the people in Babylon from Jerusalem. So we know that there was communication. Remember, these people were not uh, slaves or prisoners. Uh, they were indentured servants. So they were they had some degree of freedom. Uh, they had some degree of uh, assembly and were able to study, they were able to marry and, and have children, etc. Um, it was uh, not in the, the form of 
slavery that we think of today. Money gospel where it was about Christ healing a blind man, and I read it and I didn't pay much attention, I guess, but I read it. But then when the priest explained what the gospel was, he asked the blind man once, uh, What do you see? And he said, Oh, I see trees moving around, and this kind of stuff. And I didn't pay attention, but he was saying it. Well, okay, then he did it again. He, took a second shot at it, and then the man saw people people as they were supposed to be. And I said, oh, I didn't realize that he'd even done it twice, but he did. And the idea was that just because you try something once and it doesn't work, God has had to do it twice in that particular case. But interpreting, relating that, so let's say for into us, Someone had to explain it to me. I wouldn't have got it, but I, this is what you've been trying to say. That's how we should read. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you can read scripture one day and get sort of a message, but you can read it another time and get a clearer message or a slightly different message. Scripture is a living organism, you might say, and it is never quite the same, because you've changed, your circumstances have changed, and how it affects you and uh, what is its meaning to you can change as well, all right? Yes? Right. That's right, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, when there are different people involved, uh, look at it from... And that's what Lexio Divina, how you've all heard of the term Lexio Divina, all right, which means in, from Latin, holy reading. Uh-huh. All right. The whole idea of Lexio Divina is when you put yourself into a scene within the scripture that you're reading. For example, the one that you're reading, if you were standing right there next to Christ and this blind man, uh, how would you feel at the time uh, when he healed him the first portion, the first time, but it wasn't exactly a complete healing? Would you be disappointed? Would you say, "Ah, well, you know, anybody can do that? Or how would you feel? And then would you see him do it the second time and he's completely restored uh, in his sight uh, that's a whole different story then, is it not? Like you've just said. Yeah. And so Lexio Divina kind of gives you um, the guidelines to put yourself into the scene. One of the scenes I like to kind of think about and put myself in is when Jesus is in the home of uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and Mary's all fussing, I mean, Martha's all worried and worked up about getting a good dinner going, and Mary's sitting there listening to Jesus. You don't know where Lazarus is, you know. He's out with the boys, I'm sure. Uh, 
But if you put yourself into the scene, the first question you ask is, what is Jesus saying to Mary that she's so involved in listening to him that she's ignoring her sister? And it can become an interesting observation in a way. So try it someday. Put yourself, find a scene that you like in the Bible, one that you really don't have full knowledge or understanding of. Put yourself in there to see if you can uh, absorb some of the, the thoughts and the action and the feeling that's going on. Got a little out of hand there, but nevertheless. I guess it's difficult for the people in the past to basically understand what God is trying to say, given the fact that they do have the books. The books which basically they understand on how God would want them to go about. Well, now, what books, what books are you talking about? Any of the first books that basically were inscribed to basically follow what the will of God has them to. Well, it depends on what time period you're talking about also, because those books were written over a long period of time. And the first book of the Bible was not written until the 5th century B.C. Granted, so it's difficult for people to basically follow exactly what God is trying to say at that point. Well, go on, go on. And you compared it basically on what what they're doing and compared to what we're doing here in terms of reading the scripture. Yeah. It, it wouldn't be the same, I would expect, because Trinity was not available to them at that point. Oh, I, all right. Well, you're you're right. But as I just through, got through saying, that the scriptures change and affect people in the time period in which they exist and the information which is available to them. Uh, So, to the people, let's say, of uh, the second century B.C., who didn't have all of the New Testament uh, with them yet, they could look at the prophets of old and still get a message that would affect them and be applicable to their lifestyle at that time period. Uh, For example, the second century B.C. was a very traumatic century of time because of the overrun by the Greek gods and the Greek empire of the time. All right? And a lot of the people were persecuted because the Greek the Greek king, because Alexander the Great had died long before that, but the Greek king, who was Antiochus IV, tried to instill the Jewish, I mean the Greek culture on the Jewish people and get them to abandon that. Well, if they went back and looked at what the prophets were saying about hope and sticking to the one true God who was the God of Israel, that would be meaningful to them at that time period. Does that help you? Yeah, I, I, I can understand uh, you know, um, how the Jews, the ways stick in their heart in the way they lived in the past. 
now they were caught. And it's, to me, it's kind of difficult for them too, because the point of this, when the judge decided to basically, I've had enough, I will instill the spirit in you and the covenants in your heart. Well, that's that's a word that's a word for a word practically right out out of Ezekiel. So that at that point he is not going to guide them anymore. Well, with his hand because it is difficult because these people are in tremendous difficulty in understanding what he wants to do and they can understand, you know, what they're going through in terms of the logics and decisions because it's not a well, it's easier for us to say that now, you know, because we have the spirit in us that would actually guide us, mm-hmm. or counsel us. But in a sense, if you're referring to, if you go into the depth of understanding what the feeling is, how the Lord wants you to you go deeper in prayer and meditate and metaphorically, hopefully, you would understand what your purpose in life is in our earth. Well, yeah, but God was always of the heart of these people uh, and available to them in prayer, not in the way we think of it today, because you're right, the Holy Spirit was not given to them until much later, but the prophets were still there and all of the teachings were still there, so, and God, remember, is not going to judge them by today's standards. He's going to judge them by what the standards were at that time and what was available to them at that time. Let's go on. Okay. Verse uh, 4, this is chapter 45, verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen one, Right. Now, Jacob, of course, goes way back in time here. I have called you by name, giving you a title, though you do not know me. He's talking again about Cyrus now, and he's referring to Jacob again as one of his partners of the past. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. It is I who arm you, though you do not know me so that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create the darkness. I make a will and create woe. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, remember... Most of this is directed to a lot of the people that still are not convinced that they're going to be released. You have the whole spectrum of thought. Remember, we had talked about, let's say there was a thousand people. We have no idea how many Jewish people were in Babylon at the time. But let's say just a thousand people. Out of a thousand you're going to have the whole spectrum of belief and unbelief and everything in between. But Isaiah is writing primarily to those people in this particular case who are not believing that God is going to release them. And 
to those people who really don't care. Remember, some of them became uh, comfortable in their position in Babylon with the circumstances that they had developed, and they probably didn't even know anything about Jerusalem except what they heard from their parents and others. Uh, so they didn't care. But God has to get these people back to Israel to continue his plan of salvation through them. So this whole next section here uh, is referring to these doubters, you might say. If you go over to the uh, paragraph at the bottom of the next page, uh, 123, it says, Not all of the prophet's contemporaries welcome this message, but he insists that the choice of Cyrus is God's. The only woe oracle that appears in the fourth section of the book, that is what we're reading to now, is directed at those who cannot accept the prophet's word about Cyrus without the restoration of Judah's um, native dynasty, there will be no restored Judahite state. And by naming Cyrus as God's messenger or partner or anointed one, and the word is Messiah, not messenger, but nevertheless the word Messiah means the anointed one. It does not mean redeemer or um at the lofty point that we have put Christ at. The prophet appears to accept a continuing subordinate role for Judah in the political sphere. Though the exiles will be free to return to their land, Judah will remain subject to the Persian king. This is very important because of what is coming later. If we go on to the next page, it says, Apparently, some of the exiles expected that any restoration of Judah would involve the restoration of the Davidic, Davidic dynasty and the Judahite national state. And that, of course, did not happen because it was not intended that way. Remember, even though these people were being released by Cyrus, uh, Israel was still under the conquered domination of the Babylonians and now uh, the Persians and of course later the Greeks and then later the Romans. So from the point of the Babylonian exile through the time of Christ which was almost 500 years, up until 1948, Israel was never a sovereign country. They were always under the domination of someone else, another power. Okay. So that is an important aspect that has to be considered. Uh, even though Cyrus allowed them to return, or a small group return to Israel and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, it was never an independent country. They were always under the domination of someone else. 
And of course, excuse me, the uh, Muslim people or the Arabs thought the same thing because of Isaac's, uh, I mean, uh, because of Is of Jacobah, because of Ishmael, yes, Abraham's uh, son by the the slave woman Hagar, uh, the. Arab people always feel that he was the firstborn son and according to the custom of the time period uh, that land belonged to him and therefore it belonged to the Arab people and of course they still claim that in the same way that the Jewish people claim it. Unfortunately uh, the uh, United Nations in 1948 played God and said uh, Israel was to give, be given back a certain amount of territory and the Palestinians had to accept it. Period. Okay. It, uh, paragraph 17. Israel has been saved by the Lord, saved forever. Mm-hmm. Goes on the next page in that song. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that prophecy never came to be. How do we, how do we understand a prophecy that isn't a prophecy when you read the prophets? That's a good point. Um, Dick is referring to the last statement of the scripture on page one twenty-three. Says Israel has been saved by the Lord and saved forever. Okay. That would have been true. In, <clears throat> that would have been true in a in a spiritual context, because that is what God had promised. Only if they uh, were true to the covenant on their side, which they were not, and had not been for a long time. And even when they got back to Israel, they still were not true to the covenant. Remember, the covenant that was made originally by God with Abraham and renewed down through the line of all of these important people that I talked about earlier stated that if you are true to my word and follow my instructions, I will do this for you. It was a unilateral, I mean, sorry, it was a bilateral commitment. Okay, they had to do so much, and God would do so much. And what he's, this is a promise, but a promise that only was uh, based on condition of faithfulness to the commitment. And it isn't stated that way here, but it is in several other places. So that intervenes basically is not God not intervening with the will of anybody. Well, he's not going to wipe them out, no, uh, because that would take free will away from them. But if they did not obey the covenant and be faithful to it, he was not going to keep his portion of the covenant, which would have been protection. Okay, And, of course, after 
the, the, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, but after the Jewish people totally rejected God in the person of Jesus Christ who stood right before them, him, then he gave them, after they crucified Christ, he still gave them another 40 years to see the light, and they refused to, and so he wiped out the covenant. And that was shown by the destruction of Jerusalem again, along with the temple. And for that, uh, unfortunately, that uh, with, he withdrew the covenant and reinstituted the covenant through Jesus Christ. And those who accept the teachings and are baptized into the faith of Christ. I want to go on to this point of universalism. The whole idea that came out of the Babylonian captivity was the reliance of the people upon the God of Israel, the one true and only God. Throughout history, up to that point, all the little kingdoms surrounding the Jewish people had their own individual gods with a small g. Okay. But they didn't coincide with each other. There was no one pattern or one thought uh, that ran between all of these other um, ideas of God. The idea of God was not so much somebody who created the earth, the moon, the stars, and all of mankind, but gods who could be manipulated in such a way that it, the outcome would be whatever the individual wanted. All right. In other words, the whole idea of pagan god worship was not always for the idea of worshiping the creator, but worshiping somebody who would uh, take care of them or provide something for them or give them something or get their own way, etc., etc. It was sort of a, a selfish, uh, self-serving concept. God is now trying to establish the whole idea that he alone is God. And he's doing it by allowing the Jewish people first to be carted off to Babylon and then by allowing Cyrus the Great to release these people and return them not only with his blessing but with his help. And he even sent Nehemiah back with the Jewish people to help them rebuild uh, the city as well as the temple. Now, he is saying over and over here, I am the God and there is no other. 
It is because he is trying to get not only the pagan nations around the Jews, but a lot of the Jews themselves. Because though the central idea was to worship the one true and only God, uh, many of them sort of wanted to hedge their bets. So they went along with some of these uh, pagan gods on the side. And he had to get rid of that. God had to get them rid of that idea that all of these uh, little images that they had carved, and we went through that last week, uh, were of no value. That he alone was the one true God. And from that, the whole idea of a one and only true God began to spread throughout the world. The whole idea of the diaspora, that is, we had talked about just before the uh, Babylonian captivity in the early part of the 6th century, when Nebuchadnezzar tried to conquer the Jewish people, many of the wealthy uh, and those who could escaped and went to other parts of the world, primarily North Africa and to Greece. Part of that was also God's plan of salvation, to spread the idea of the one true God, because what these people did, when they did go to these other uh, countries, they took their Judaism with them. And most of them were faithful Jewish people, and they set up little synagogues in these various places with the same teachings of the one true God. All right? And that, again, was part of God's plan of salvation. Uh, and from that, the idea of a one and only true God who made heaven and earth and all of that, all of creation, including mankind, began to develop and move out. And today, of course, we have almost a universal concept of a one true God. There are very few people that uh, worship idols as a ongoing religion um, on a national basis. Yeah, you have little uh, cults here and there, uh, but as a universal type of thing, uh, you don't see that as much anymore. But it's important how God's plan spread out from this particular event. And as the book itself says, uh, it rivals with, uh, it rivals in importance with the exodus of, from Egypt back at the time of Moses, as far as the Jewish people are concerned. But, the Jewish people do not recognize it that way, or they will not admit it, I should say. Uh, if you read Jewish history, they seldom talk about the Babylonian exile because of why they got there in the first place. They were sent 
to Babylon as part of God's punishment for the apostasy and the neglect of the teachings of Moses and the fact that they, and because of the effect that they did not live a just and holy life. They did not fulfill the commitment for which they were made, and that is to be the light to the nations, to other nations. So remember, the word nations, when translated back into Hebrew, comes out what? Gentile. So when you read the word nations or other nations in this book or any part of Old Testament scripture, think of the word Gentile. And a Gentile was anyone who wasn't a Jew. So, what we're talking about here is a lot of this teaching was to go out not only to the Jewish people, but it was to be spread out among those around the Jewish people, particularly those who were harmful to the Jewish nation. Remember, any nation that was harmful to the Jewish people were severely punished, or in some cases, annihilated. Many of the cities involved in this. For example, the city of Baghdad itself does not exist any longer. And yet, it was the center of one of the seven wonders of the world, which we used to call the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. That city does not exist any longer because it was so harmful to the Jewish people. And you have several of these examples throughout the world. Sodom and Gomorrah is one of the first uh, that we can think of. But there are others. Remember, Jesus, or rather, God chose the Jewish people because they were to be a light to the nations. Now, let's turn that into something today. Are we a light to the nation? Or other nations? Or other people? Remember, Jesus has taken that wording in the Sermon on the Mount and put it in slightly different words, but the meaning is the same. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And if you change that slightly, you are to be a light to the world. Yes, sir. I'm just a little confused. Uh, you said that the, the Jews were supposed to be a light to all nations. They were supposed to kind of go out and spread the Judaism, right? To all the nations. Yep. But in their 613 uh, laws, they couldn't eat with a Gentile. They couldn't talk to a Gentile. Precisely. <laughs> I'm confused. How can they go out and, you know, proselytize, but they couldn't talk to them and they couldn't eat with them and they couldn't be with a Gentile? What's uh, that about? All right. Well, <laughs> it, uh, a very good question. you got to remember, though, that Jesus, I'm sorry, 
that God gave them ten commandments. He didn't give them 613. That was Moses. And, And not just Moses. That was Moses and a lot of people who came right after Moses. All right. Because the whole 613, which uh, comes out of books that were written long after Moses. So it wasn't just Moses that created the 613 laws. And now, of course, uh, since the 4th to the 12th century AD, that's even been extended into more through the Talmud. The Mishnah uh, uh, books of the of the Jewish people. Okay. Now to get back to your question, the light to the nations and the Jewish people were given the Ten Commandments. Okay. These were basic laws that most, except for the first three or four, except. That most people had those as part of the moral law anyways. Uh, these are not really brand new, but it's the first time they were put into a structure of that kind. Okay. You can live uh, a moral life. Uh, you can live a um, just and social, as a just and social community in spite of all of those laws. All right? And that is what they were supposed to do. It wasn't that they were supposed to go out and preach uh, or teach other nations. It was that they were to give an example through their own uh, internal lifestyle. Now, the Jewish people, though, because of this idea of thinking that they were the chosen people because they were so great in themselves, developed this exclusive, or exclusive, whatever, you know what I mean. Okay. <laughs> Can't get my tongue straightened out today. Exclusivity. Uh, that's not right, but you, you know, you get the idea. Okay. They developed that instead of doing just the opposite. Okay. And then from that, they developed this whole idea of not marrying outside of their own tribe, let alone outside of the Jewish nation. That has kind of all been kind of wiped away. Uh, but because this whole idea uh, of being exclusive uh, turned against what God really wanted of them, And he had tried over and over and over through the prophets and many others uh, to get them to see the light. And they never did. They never will. So, one, uh, it's it's a difficult thing. Uh, I enjoy reading Jewish history and background because it sort of reinforces what I've been teaching for all these years. Okay? And sometimes I'll do it sort of to uh, refresh my memory as to why certain things happen. Okay? Uh, I'm reading a book right now that um, is very interesting and yet I feel sad because they're missing the point. 
They're just totally missing the point. God wants all of us to be a light to the nations. You are a light to the world. Okay. And that means by our living, our style of living. Uh, and if we don't think about that, and if we don't measure up to that, we will be held accountable. Just as the Jewish people were held accountable. But we will not be caught up as a nation to be accountable. We were, are accountable as an individual. Wait up. They are a sect within the Orthodox, yes. Yes, the Hasidic Jews are those who came out of Spain. Okay, the uh, Ashkenazi Jews are those who came out of Germany. And those are the ones that established the Yiddish version of the language. Okay, Yiddish is a combination of Hebrew and German. It is not pure Hebrew. Yiddish. Yeah, those came from the Ashkenazi Jews out of Germany. The Hasidic are the ultra, ultra orthodox. And you may have seen, well, you don't see them around here so much, but if you go to New York, you will see them quite often. Uh, they ro- wear long black uh, robes. They always wear a black hat. William, you got one right there. Um and uh, they have the curls and so forth, and many of them do uh, have long beards, even though they're young people, they don't shave. Okay. Yeah. You asked the question, are we the light to the world? And I know you're talking about individually, but I would like to propose that collectively, the Pope, the leader of the Greek Orthodox, uh, the leader of the Anglican Church, and others, Christians, are the light to the world. Mm-hmm. They are proposing. Now, it's got to get down to us with our neighbors. That's very important. It should be down with us country to country, but that I don't think is established. And a person to person. Yes, but unfortunately, look how uh, society, and let's put it that way, I really mean politics, uh, society is trying to quench that light from the Pope and any other aspect of church teaching, yeah. So uh, we have to combat that. Yes, we have to stand up for our rights and combat that. Yeah. Yes, Karen. They think so. Yeah. Yes, Karen's question is: Do the Jewish Orthodox people still consider that the covenant is in place. And yes, unfortunately they do. They still never recognized why the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And it was after 40 years of Jesus, uh, of God giving the Jewish people ample time to see what the resurrection of Jesus Christ really meant and what the apostles and the evangelists, uh, and Paul and so forth were really teaching, and they still refused to accept it. The Romans came in and destroyed the city and the temple, the temple never to be rebuilt, and it never will be rebuilt 
for that same reason. Any other questions? Do you get the whole idea of the universalism? That's important. Uh, the whole idea of these pagan gods uh, made up of little statues and other forms, uh, other beliefs, um, were beginning to be wiped out through the idea and the spread of the uh, concept of the one true God of all creation. Okay. Very important. So, time, as time moves on, we have all of these new things that came out. The climax of God's plan of creation was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the man who was God. Okay. But it's not the end. The plan of salvation continues on through the Holy Spirit guiding the church. And who are the prophets of today? Hmm? Who are the prophets of today? The church is primarily the prophets of the day. Capital C, okay? Capital C, yes. The church is the prophet of today. But who makes up the church? We are the church. And therefore, we should be a light to the nations in our own little way. That doesn't mean that, you know, you have to ring doorbells and stand on street corners and preach or anything. But you have to be careful that whatever you do and whatever you say measures up to what God is expecting of you. Now, for example, let's, let's take just the phrase or the passage uh, beginning on the previous page 17. Israel has been saved by the Lord and saved forever. You shall never be put to shame or disgrace in any future age. Well, it has, certainly, in many ways. In the second century uh, B.C., it was besieged and conquered, uh, or tried to be conquered, wasn't completed, uh, by the uh, Seleucid uh, or Greek kings, okay, Antiochus IV. And that is what um, the whole uh, Maccabean Wars are all about. And if you read the first and second book of Maccabees, you'll get um, a good taste of that. Now, God did protect them. God did uh, allow that uh, to be avenged and so forth, but they suffered a great deal. It says, For thus says the Lord, the creator of the heavens, who is God, the designer and maker of the earth who established it. Not as an empty waste did he create it, but designing it to be lived in. In other words, God made all things. Man is his crowning glory, but all other things made were made by God to support mankind in his uh, quest to worship the one true God. Not as an empty waste did he create it, but designing it to be lived in. 
For I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from some place in the land of darkness. I have not said to the descendants of Jacob, Look for me in an empty waste. I, the Lord, promise justice. I declare what is right. Come and assemble together, you fugitives from among the nations. They are without knowledge who bear wooden idols. Again, this is in reference back to those people who did pick up uh, and start worshiping idols that they were that were made out of wood or ivory or gold, and pray to gods that cannot save. Come close and declare. Let them take counsel together. Who announced this from the beginning or declared it from of old? Was it not I, the Lord, beside whom there is no other God? There is no just and saving God but me. Turn to me and be safe, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. That's a song that we sing in church, are using those words. Be not afraid. And there's another one called Turn to Me, I think it is. By myself I swear, uttering my just decree, a word that will not return. To me every knee shall bend, and by me every tongue shall swear, saying, Only in the Lord are just deeds and power. Before him in shame shall come all who vent their anger against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall have vindication and glory, and I'm going to add, provided that they are faithful to the covenant established with them by God, beginning with Abraham and then down through the ages. And theologically, are we not descendants of Jacob? Theologically speaking, yes. Yes, because our background and the basis for our faith is really the Jewish faith. Yes. Yeah. It says in the in a commentary here, uh, just about the fourth line down. Here the prophet has the nations recognized the Lord's role in the fall of Babylon, the rise of Persia, and the liberation of Jerusalem. By defeating Judah, the nations serve God's purposes without knowing it. But this new act of God would make it possible for them to recognize Israel's God as the only God. How much more powerful can there be than that? Any questions? Yes, sir. Um, I understand what you said about Cyrus being used by God Yes. He. All right. That is mentioned back a little bit further. You may not have caught it, but this is where God allowed him to overrun Ethiopia and Egypt. Yeah. Okay. God allowed him some other privileges, but that also. Uh, Work into his plan of salvation. 
So he just woke up one day and said, I'm going for Ethiopia. <laughs> well, I'm sure it was more than one day. I'm going to release the Jews. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you don't know, and it would be interesting to know how he got inspired to release the Jews, because like I said, it was something that had never been done before. Yeah. And, you know, when I get to heaven, boy, I've got a long, long list of questions. I'm just surprised that no historians ever contemplated that and wrote a book about it, you know, about why Cyrus did what he did. That's right. But, you know, nobody had ever written, what was the life of the Jewish people while they're in Babylon? There's no writing that we know of. If there was anything, it was destroyed. Yeah. So there is so much that we would like to know the details. Um, and yet, we'll have to wait till we get up there to find out. Okay. Some of the books are disqualified from the whole context of the Bible, like the Judas book. And then stuff like that. Now it's uncovering in regards to a legendary book. That's in covering to the world exactly what, what the books were for, and it was disqualified from the actual book of the Bible. Well, William mentions that there have other books been discovered that were not put into the Bible. Uh, yes and no. There was a reason. When the Bible was brought together in the 4th century A.D., of course, by St. Jerome, he chose to cut off, not eliminate or disqualify, but to cut off the time period for, of the writings. And anything that was not, anything that was not written no, anything that was written after the death of the last apostle was not accepted as being inspired by the Holy Spirit, which was the main criteria for any of the books of the Bible to get in there. So, what we have in the New Testament are only those books that talk about and are written within the first century A.D., and that is the, why we call our church the one true Catholic and apostolic church, because it comes from the writings of the apostles. So was Mary not an apostle? Mary was not an apostle. That's right. And, uh, and Judas, Judas was disqualified because of what he did, and that book that purports to be the Gospel of Judas was written in the second century. Long after, and it wasn't written by Judas. Was that discovered already? No, it was just discovered recently. We have no idea when it was actually written. Any other? Yes, Jose. I won't call you Jose at today. I'm a lector of my church. And uh, when you took up Isaiah, I, I began to realize that the way Isaiah writes is quite different from the others. Uh, and, and then I asked, why is it that Isaiah is, is, is the one chosen in almost all the first readings of the third reading? Yes, yes. 25% of all of the readings, of the first readings, are for Sunday Masses, are from Isaiah. Now, the question is why? 
because he speaks so much of things like I just read. God is supreme among all the gods or all things that people worship. Uh, and he talks a great deal, not so much up to this point, but as we get closer <coughs> to the end of Isaiah, he talks more about the prophecies that refer to Jesus Christ. And you'll see from now on, and particularly when we get into uh, Lent and closer to Easter, almost all of the first readings will be from Isaiah. Uh, because after chapter 49, uh, much of Isaiah pertains to uh, the future. All right. Uh, unfortunately, from 56 to 66, it comes back to the people after they had returned to Babylon. I mean, I'm sorry, after they had returned to Israel and Jerusalem. Uh, but between 49 and 55, you have a number of prophecies that pertain to Jesus Christ. Well, because we have to learn by example, we have to learn by what history is teaching us. And you remember, history repeats itself in many ways. And so the purpose of studying this is not just for history's sake, but it is so that we avoid the pitfalls that are in here. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. <laughs> yes, a good way of putting it. We need to learn by the mistakes of others because there's not enough time to do them or make them ourselves. Yes. Very nice. Thank you. Yes. Any other questions? All right, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We hope and pray that you instill in our minds the meaning and the understanding of your holiness, your oneness, the sacred idea of a one true God as expressed through the Holy Trinity. Help us then to understand as we read Holy Scripture what you're trying to say to us as individuals today. Help us then really to be a light to the nations and the salt of the earth. So give us the strength and the courage to step out knowing that when we do you will help us because you will be there with us in spirit. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.